This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in your podcast app. I want to present a model of language evolution that Ray Jackendorf, who you've heard before and I have been developing over the last few years, and talk about what that model would imply for the evolution of pragmatics. So what's pragmatics? Well, pragmatics is those aspects of utterance meaning that are not overtly expressed by the words of the utterance or their syntax. So for instance, you understand this utterance differently, whether you follow the news in France, where people demonstrate to retire earlier than 64, or in Austrian academia, or maybe any academia at all, where people want to retire later than 64. This is an example of scalar implicature. It's one of the poster children of pragmatics. Here, um, Anna forgot to bring her laptop or Ben returned to London. These are examples of presuppositions. Anna was supposed to bring her laptop and Ben was previously in London. You have to understand this presupposition before you judge the actual sentence, Anna forgot to bring her laptop or Ben returned to London to be true. Um, another example are uh, meaning extensions. For instance, the verb to explode has a different kind of meaning um, in Mildred's head exploded when she saw the heating bill than in he the heating bill exploded last year. Or the kids exploded the Lego building with the toy cars. Those meaning extensions or coercions are very frequent in language and they're entirely built on pragmatic inference. You can't just posit additional senses of explode in order to understand these, sen these sentences, you have to extend the meaning in a, in a way that makes sense based on what you know about the world. So there's a strong sense that the domain of pragmatics is intimately tied to non-linguistic world knowledge, but it is also reliably triggered by the system that we have, namely by syntactic and lexical means. I argue today that when we talk about linguistic evolution, as we have before, especially when we think about it in light of artificial intelligence, we need to think about the evolution of pragmatics in the same pace. So the issue posed here is how might pragmatic phenomena have developed in the course of the evolution of the language faculty? And an answer to this question, of course, depends on your model of modern language. Our previous work um, addressed this process through what was really a thought experiment. We reversed engineered possible stages of linguistic evolution in what we called the complexity hierarchy. These stages in the complexity hierarchy formed a hierarchy that began with a system of grammatically simple one unit utterances or one word grammars. And the system culminates in what one could call a full grammar with typical modern syntax. For convenience only, we refer to this as the complexity hierarchy and complexity really only refers to the syntactic part. But what would a fully complex language like English or Hungarian look like? You've already heard uh, previous talks about the parallel architecture, so this is not a super big surprise for you. But Just to recap very quickly, language in this view is a way to communicate over relevant messages. That is, it has to have interfaces to other senses, hapsis, visual perception, motor control, action planning, auditory perception, and so on. What matters is that you get a meaning across through either signed or spoken signals, in other words, phonology. 
So the sketch that you see here would represent an organism that can perceive and have thoughts and that can act on the basis of those thoughts. But it cannot communicate those thoughts in any rich fashion. This is a plausible sketch of primate cognition, for instance, which is fa fairly sophisticated, but it lacks structure. We argued in earlier work that this direct route from phonology to meaning and vice versa is also to be found in various phenomena of modern language as living fossils, so to speak, coexisting with the complexity of modern syntax. And I'll give you a couple of examples later. What makes human language unique, as we argue, is that most complex language also uses morphology and syntax to structure the messages from meaning to phonology. But as Ray's talk will have told you, this architecture does not see syntax as more central than other components. Another important feature here is that inference or reasoning is taken to be a suit of mental processes that map existing thoughts into new ones and that check the, each other for consistency with the rest of your knowledge. These processes are defined not over words or sentences, which is also a difference to other models of language, but over conceptual structures. The basic question that we ask ourselves for the complexity hierarchy was, what aspects of this system would be useful on their own and what aspects would require pre-existing scaffolding? For instance, grammatical gender agreement makes no sense without a class of words, for instance, nouns, that actually trigger that agreement and without there being other classes like adjectives or verbs that are potential targets for this agreement. So the central thesis of our work is that a grammatical hierarchy, which could originate in a one-word grammar and go through these several stages until, in terms of syntax, it becomes as complex as many of the languages we know now, that if we follow this thought experiment of this complexity hierarchy, another thought experiment has to follow. That the more simple the syntax, the more ambiguity there is, and the more work there is for pragmatics. Now, this part is not new. This trade-off between morphosyntactic complexity and added load for pragmatics has often been discussed and observed, and I'll give a couple of examples in a minute. But, and I think this is something that is unique to our approach, we also claim that gradually many of the core phenomena of pragmatics, like the presuppositions and implicatures I mentioned before, have as their prerequisite a system that is stable and complex enough in its lexicon and morphosyntax to develop reliable and precise triggers for pragmatic inferences. So, in the remainder of the talk, I will walk you through this hierarchy, not step by step because we don't have the time, but jump by jump, just pointing out some um, rungs of the, on the complexity ladder. So a linear hierarchy of grammar consisting of several different steps that built on each other would start naturally with something that is just an utterance, right? And we call this the one word grammar in which an utterance simply consists of a word. Now, you can also think about the next useful rung in the ladder, and that, in our thinking at least, would be a two-word grammar, right? Where you can string two words together in order to form an utterance. And different problems arise, I will, as I will show in a minute. And finally then, what, what you would like to get at is a linear grammar, right? In which you have an unlimited, at least in theory, string of words that together jointly form an utterance. Now, what I want to stress is that in this world, there are no parts of speech of morphology needed. 
The linear order is entirely in the phonological structure and the interpretation is driven by the relation between phonology and semantics. So what would a one-word grammar look like? Well, for instance, a one-word grammar in which you say cookie gives you simply the meaning of cookie, right? So the phonology provides you the symbol um, or the sign and the semantics is simply the word cookie. Now, the one thing a one-word grammar needs is pragmatics and social cognition. In a one-word grammar, the phonology gives you a symbol that points to the meaning of here cookie, but the meaning of the utterance has to be, in most cases, interpreted by heavy pragmatic lifting. This heavy lifting is formalized by the function f here, which is unexpressed since we're only in a one-word stage. So the interpretation of, say, cookie in a child's one-word stage has to be derived by pragmatic reasoning. So cookie could mean all, a number of things, right? It could mean there's a cookie, where's the cookie, give me a cookie. But it could also mean something that is a little bit more out there. So something like, I want a cookie, or mommy's eating a cookie, or daddy's eating a cookie. So what you may be asking is, what good is a one-word grammar? And I would argue that it's plenty good already, better than no communication for sure. And that in modern language, like for instance, in uh, children's one-word stages, we use principle as hearers or listeners from one-word grammar all the time. Even in adult language, if I tell you a scotch, then you probably infer that I would really like a scotch right now. Now, two-word grammars have a reduced interpretation space, right? So if I add all of a sudden mommy cookie, that eliminates all the interpretations that don't have mommy in them, such as daddy's eating a cookie or the cookies made of chocolate. Now, you might think this is trivial, but it really is not because when we interpret um, utterances, we always take into account non-linguistic context as well. The combination of two words in a row is excluding some of these seemingly relevant interpretive options. But two-word grammars face a new problem. They need to specify the relation between the meanings of the two words. Now, it just so happens that in English, we are faced by this problem all the time, namely when we want to inter interpret English noun-noun compounds. For instance, if I tell you about a union member, you will have to apply what we call a function argument schema in order to understand that a union member is a member of a union, right? The argument union applies to the function member. You have to be a member of something. A modification schema is what you use when you interpret chocolate cake. Namely, when I tell you about a chocolate cake, you understand that the cake, that the cake is made of chocolate. Of course, you can always add pragmatic interpretations. For instance, in snowman, in order to understand snowman, you will apply the modification schema plus some pragmatics, right? A snowman is a simulation of a man that is made of snow. You have to apply a little bit of a different pragmatics in order to understand garbage man. That could also be a man that is made of garbage, but no, it's a man who takes away the garbage, right? Um, and finally, co-argument schema and pragmatics is what you employ in compounds like seahorse, which is really not at all um, a horse. It's also not some kind of sea. It's something that just looks like a horse and lives in the sea. So the, re the space of interpretation is further reduced in linear grammars. And 
Um, for instance, in utterances that have more than two words in a row. If I tell you cow, big horse, you can have still a, a, quite a big interpretation space. For instance, you need to decide whether the cow is big or the horse is big. Or in utterances like girl, give, book, boy, take, which is something that you find in sign form often in evolving sign languages, you need to decide who is giving what to who. Now, languages all over the place have developed strategies in order to relieve the pragmatic system of this interpretive burden. For instance, we find strategies like putting the agent before the action or the agent before the patient. Those are the beginnings of rudimentary word order systems. We also find strategies that topics, things that are um, already mentioned, are often marked by initial positions in, uh, in an utterance and focus is often marked by a final or near final position. So as we go from a one to a two word stage to a linear grammars, what we can see is that there's a reduction of interpretative, interpretative space, um, which has to be resolved by the pragmatics. So far, I've stressed the role of grammatical complexity in reducing the work that pragmatic principles have to do in constructing utterance meaning, especially reducing the need for massive resolution of ambiguity, like who does what to whom. In the one and two word grammars that I've examined here, pragmatic principles are necessary to establish basic relationships, like who does what to whom or who's doing what with the cookie, right? Now, as we move up further to the right, uh, the complexity hierarchy to recursive phrase grammars, which I don't have time to talk about, and from there to fully syntactic grammars, which is what we all probably speak or sign, more of these aspects of meanings are systematized or conventionalized by grammar, and this role of pragmatic principles is reduced. So what I want to talk about now are the pragmatic phenomena that really are only possible when you move right on the hierarchy. So let's go back to our case of scalar implicature, right? Um, in this configuration, what is said, said, namely 64, is meant to be understood not simply as a number, but as a reference point on a scale, right? You're either annoyed that you have to already, that you have to retire that late only at 64, that is the red interpretation, or you're annoyed because you have to retire already at 64, that's the blue interpretation. This difference is entirely driven by what we know about retirement regulations in France and in Austria or in academia all over the place, and how, academ how academics versus other people feel about their jobs. That is, these are examples of a system of grammatical and pragmatic components working really in tandem. So one, one reason I find this example interesting is because if you ask one of the very uh, popular uh, chat systems now, chat GPT, why are people annoyed at having to retire at age 64? It is very obvious that ChatGPT is an American system, right? Because it only considers the blue interpretation. Many people may be upset to retire at 64 because they may not feel ready to stop working or feel like they have unfinished business and so on. So artificial systems um, have the problem that they don't understand this context dependence and that they are relying on what they're fed. This is not new, but I think it is especially uh, powerful in the domain of pragmatics. Another 
example is the example of presupposition triggers. Adding grammatical complexity doesn't by any means eliminate the need for aspects of meanings that are not expressed by words. Rather, the precision of expression offered by syntax opens up more opportunities for finer-grained pragmatic principles. For instance, the definite article the in this example, the orange square is big, triggers presuppositions of existence. There has to be an orange square in order for the sentence to make sense and uniqueness. There has to be exactly one orange square that I am talking about that you need to find. And if I tell you the orange square is big, you probably think that I think about square number one because it is quite big. Maybe also square number four, right? But I'm thinking about this one orange square. If you're in a linear grammar that has not developed a stable system to mark uh, uniqueness, for instance, and you have an utterance like big orange square, um, this leaves open whether the orange square in question is at all identifiable by the hearer, whether it is one square or many squares, and even whether it exists, right? So to reliably trigger these presuppositions and not just leave them as one possibility among many in the pragmatic system, the language relies on functional morphosyntactic markers, such as a definite articles like the or in French le or la, or demonstrative pronouns such as in Mandarin Chinese. And such a presupposition doesn't necessarily need to be triggered by a specific function word or morpheme. The absence of a functional item can equally accomplish this. For instance, in English, the opposition between singular and plural is carried by marking the plural. The unmarked form, the square, in example one, is therefore understood as singular rather than being left indeterminate as in big orange square. So reliable pragmatic principles need not depend on the presence of specific functional items like tense or determiners or quantifiers and so on. Rather, it is the configuration of the whole system and the stability of the system as a whole that enables it to reliably trigger presuppositions and implicatures. So syntactically complex language has to have evolved to reliably and consistently trigger existence and uniqueness presupposition, which means that when we talk about the evolution of language, we're, we're not only talking about the evolution of syntax as in isolation, we also have to think about the evolution of other cognitive domains that are impacted, impacted by the evolution of syntax. The examples so far have illustrated elaborations of the enrichment schema, which adds semantic material around a single constituent of the utterance. However, the two-word schema that we met before, which establishes a semantic relation between co two constituents of the utterance, is also subject to elaboration and specialization. For instance, in modern language in English, for instance, conditional expressions make use of a mixture of grammatical and pragmatic resources. One type of conditional can be um, expressed grammatically by an if clause, like if you eat one more piece of cake, you'll explode. But this meaning can also be expressed by a paratactic conditional, like you eat one more piece of cake, you explode, in which the connection between the two is unexpressed and has to be inferred pragmatically. Counterparts of the, this uh, 1b sentence can be found in many other languages, such as Italian, German, Polish, 
but also in languages limited to what has been argued simple phrase grammars, such as Riau-Indonesian, suggesting that this construction is a conventionalized elaboration of the two-word schema into a two-clause schema. But then some meanings are heavily reliant on complex syntax, even if they're very closely related to conditionals. For instance, most counterfactual conditionals. Unlike the conditionals in one and two, sentence number, th number three, if Joe hadn't bitten his nails, Mary wouldn't have left him, cannot be recast in paratactic form, at least not in the languages we surveyed. So any expansion of grammatical complexity faces a trade-off. On the one hand, language users must shoulder a cost for the sheer presence of more rules, which place demands on storage and processing. But on the other hand, this complexity confers a benefit in that it gives speakers more precise tools for saying what they want to say, and it decreases the amount of pragmatic work uh, that comprehenders must carry out on the fly. Not all languages make the same trade-off. For example, they vary in whether they require or even offer grammatical markers of features like evidentiality, definiteness, number, and so on. They even vary in whether they allow compounding or do the co work of compounding with some other grammatical constructions. More broadly, our model is compatible with and perhaps even applicable to other models of communication, from human gestures to animal calls to visual language. In particular, we can analyze animal communication system systems as located at points along a continuum of formal systems, like almost like in this old Hockett model. So as we've argued before, we don't need to draw a sharp distinction between having language and having no language. Organisms can draw either on the full range like humans do or less, like also some human uh, grammatical systems do. The question of whether a particular species has language or has syntax may now be recast in terms of where on the hierarchy its communication system falls and it also has implications on how their pragmatic system works. Now, what is interesting maybe in this context is that artificial systems may benefit from leaning on this evolution also in the domain of pragmatics. In summary, our aim is to provide a set of formal tools to analyze the range of expressive possibilities that could have been potential precursors to many present day complex communication systems under the assumption that simpler stages are still useful and that they live on in each subsequent stage. Here, we've spelled out the impact of increasing syntactic complexity on the interpretative system that in many models of language does the rest, namely pragmatic principles. We've argued that the interpretative load on some aspects of pragmatics decreases with increasing syntactic complexity, but also that some pragmatic principles depend on the reliable grammatically complex system of syntax, semantics, prosody, and the lexicon, all of which work in tandem. Now, to tie this back to the topic of this symposium, what we would argue is that if artificial intelligence is to be helpful in the study of anthropogeny, the question of how the capacity to calculate pragmatic inference co-evolved is central. Conventionally, what we see as limiting factors for such systems is their lack of a social cognition, their lack of world knowledge, their lack of principle of relevance, theory of minds, all of these things. 
But our claim is that syntactically complex linguistic systems evolve a different pragmatics engine than simpler systems. And this insight, I think, should be helpful both for understanding the scope of what artificial systems have to achieve and leveraging their power. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.